It's, it, we run purely by the donations and generosity of people, so thank you in advance for that. We're finishing up today our series on the book of Daniel. We've gone through the whole thing, the whole book of Daniel. How many of you have been here for all 12? Okay. How many of you, you're scratching your head at this book? You say, I don't know which end is up. All right, well, maybe it's, maybe it's being a little more clear for you. I talked to one person this week, and he said, I finally understand the book of Daniel. <laughs> so, well, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. But we're going to finish today. This is part 11. All of them are recorded. All of them are online, Facebook, YouTube, uh, audio on uh, Podbean and whatnot. So you can catch up. And if you have trouble with this book, it's a wonderful book for our time. It is so relevant for our time, even if you just stay in the first six chapters, which is the story of Daniel and the exiles when they end up in Babylon and just how they behave. And you watch them and you watch them live out their faith in a non-compromising manner, even in difficult circumstances, even if that's all you catch from the book, you're catching a lot. But the back half of this book is loaded with all of these visions, visions and predictions and oracles. And we call this type of literature an apocalypse, the back half. First half is narrative. The back half of the book is apocalypse. And apocalypse means you... Well, what does it mean? You tell me. See if you've been listening. It means you pull back the veil. It does not necessarily mean the end of the world. It means you pull the curtain back. If I were to pull the curtain back on this big screen, you know what you would see? A lot of cobwebs. No, what you would see is a great big speaker. A couple of them. They go all the way up to the, to the roof, okay? Really big ones. So, but that's when you pull back the curtain, and they don't want you to see that. They just want you to see the screen. So this is what's going on in apocalyptic literature. You've got Daniel that's very much that way. Got another book in the New Testament that's very much that way. Starts with an R. Revelation, there you're thinking, all right? So just to get you back in the, in the, in the general realm of things, there are several visions uh, apocalypses in the book of Daniel, several of them. So I want to give you a really quick review before we wrap it up. We're going to do three chapters super fast, last three chapters of Daniel all in one chunk, really easy. So the first one that you have is in chapter two, and this is uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a very disturbing dream that he has, where he's got this statue, a dazzling statue of different uh, elements of the periodic table, really, that the statue is made of. So the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of uh, bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And then you see this rock that's cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, that comes and crushes the whole statue. And you see that this vision is interpreted by one man, Daniel. He's the only one who can do it. Not only that, he can tell you, he can tell the king what he dreamt, and he can tell the king what it means. And he says, this is the rising and falling of kingdoms, starting with you, starting with the Babylonians, and ending with the kingdom of the Messiah. Messiah that will conquer them all. And he goes through one after the other. This is the succession of kingdoms. Now you see it again later on in Daniel chapter 7. There the king is Belshazzar, who's a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the last, he's going to be the last one before the kingdom of Babylon is taken down. And here Daniel has a vision. Now, he's not interpreting it. He has it. And the way that he has it is with all these weird animals that he sees. Oh, it's like uh, the language of, of Lord of the Rings or something. I mean, there's a fantastic imagery, but it's the same idea of 
kingdoms coming and going and being taken up and taken down. His is a little bit more specific, and we can start pinpointing and saying, well, hold on, those of us on the other side of time, we know what these kingdoms have come and gone. And it's, you've got the, the, the Babylonians, which was the head of gold, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, but to Daniel, it's a lion with these wings of eagles. And this is clearly the kingdom of Babylon. Even Daniel had said that in Daniel chapter 2. But what are the rest? And when, when we look at the history, we can pretty well figure it out. And we've got the Medo-Persians who would come and who would take out the Babylonians. And we see this in Daniel chapter 2. That's the chest and arms of silver. And in Daniel 7, it's this bear with these three ribs in his mouth. And then the Greeks are going to come under Alexander the Great, and they are going to dominate. And this is what we see with this leopard with the four heads and the, and the wings. This is a picture of Greece. And then you see this monstrous thing, very, very terrifying uh, to, to Daniel. And it's, it's the same as the legs of iron and then the feet of iron and clay. And this is the upcoming Romans who would come into power. They were in power when Jesus was... Uh, uh, walking around there in, in Palestine in the Gospels. There you have the Romans dominating the world. And there also seems to be some sort of a future kingdom that's pictured here. And in the New Testament, you see a leader that will come up here in the Old Testament in Daniel 7. You've got these horns on this thing and three of the horns are broken off. And then there's a little horn and it's very arrogant and speaking boastfully and so on. In the New Testament, we see this picture of this ruler that that Paul calls the Antichrist, that John calls the Antichrist. He's identified in the book of Revelation. It seems to rise to power toward the end of time. And then Daniel sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and approaching God himself and ultimately overtaking all of these kingdoms that come and go, even the worst of them all, the kingdom of this so-called Antichrist to come. This is Daniel chapter 7. So same idea as Daniel chapter 2. You're still with me? Okay, good. And then you get into Daniel chapter 8, and you've got, uh, he's going to see another vision. He's got two animals there, and the way that they combat each other, and what happens to the animals, and the horn breaks off and splits into four, and so on. And this is in Daniel chapter 8. This is the third year of King Belshazzar moving toward the time where the handwriting will come on the wall, and the Babylonians will be defeated. And here, it's quite specific. Because the angel Gabriel is going to explain and he's going to name Greece and he's going to name the Medo-Persians and he's going to describe with fairly good detail what will happen over the next several hundred years. The, the, the Medo-Persians would ultimately be dominated by the Persians. You would get this guy Cyrus the Great who would uh, ultimately bring the Jews back from Babylon. Babylon to Jerusalem in uh, starting in the year 538. Then you have a succession of these kings, and you see this described in Daniel chapter 8. Finally, you have the last king of Persia. He was Darius the third. Um, also, you'll see him in the book of Nehemiah. And anyway, he's defeated by this, this Greek, Alexander the Great. And we see this described fairly well in Daniel chapter 8. Again, the Greeks are named. And you see that he dies and his kingdom is parceled out to these four generals. Maybe remember some of these pictures. You've got Cassander, Seleucus, uh, Lysimachus, and, and Ptolemy. And they would start fighting over uh, to, to dominate one another, and ultimately the Seleucids would, would come to power and the Ptolemies of Egypt, and then they would start fighting. And Israel was stuck in the middle of this kind of tug of war, and you see this very nasty ruler come to power, Antiochus IV, who calls himself God in the flesh. And he ultimately uh, goes into Jerusalem kind of... Um, 
upset because he had lost a recent battle and he seems to take his wrath out on the Jews in Jerusalem. He institutes the worship of Zeus in the temple. He outlaws their circumcision. He burns their Bibles. He, he punishes anybody who violates all of his decrees. He goes into the temple and slaughters a pig on, in the temple and spills the blood all over the place. And it's, uh, it's the abomination of of desolation. Jesus refers to this in Daniel chapter 9. And so you see this described very well in Daniel chapter 8. This is the next vision. And then Daniel 9, you will see Daniel starts to do the math and he says, why aren't we going home? And he has this kind of crisis of delay and he prays to God and the angel Gabriel comes and gives him this grand vision of the, the future that he He's kind of stunned by, he doesn't know what to make of it. The chapter ends rather abruptly, but Jesus himself, as we saw, will pick up on that one verse, that one incident of when that, that king went into that temple and profaned it. And he, this is called the so-called abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus will look at it many, many years later, and he will say that that's going to happen again. And he's, you need to watch out for that because when that comes, you need to wake up and your eyes need to be open. And he's referring to a past event as if it's also going to occur another time in the future. And then we move into Daniel 10, 11, and 12. You lost yet? No. Are you found? That's better to be found than lost. So you get into the last oracle, the last vision of the book of Daniel. And this one is, is very, very challenging um, because really what you're talking about is one message. And if you, get, if you get anything from this last sermon on this book, you cannot escape the reality that Daniel is making every effort to describe to his audience uh, the nature of God, the ability of God, the power of God, and in particular, the supernatural quality of God. Because there's nothing natural about these last three chapters. You know, uh, I see Shu Yin and her family here, and she, she preached last week on the book of Esther, just a little bit on the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, which is about 100 years later than the incidents of the book of Daniel, at least in a general sense, um, Esther doesn't have any supernatural in it. People love the book of Esther because it doesn't have any miracles in it. it. It doesn't even mention God in the book of Esther. This is not the case at all with the book of Daniel. So you're really challenged as you look into these last three chapters. They are something else. They're, they're coming at you if you are you know live in the modern world and you have trouble believing that God can do miracles and believing that God is supernatural. This is the challenge of these last three chapters. We're told right at the get-go that this is the third year of Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia. So this is about 534 BC. And Daniel is telling us that he's receiving here a vision. And uh, it, it, it's a, it concerns, as he puts it here in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 10, a great war. And the understanding of this comes to him in a vision. And there's so many things that we can learn from it um, in a broad sense. It's a very tough last three chapters to interpret if you don't know the whole backdrop and you haven't worked your way through all the other chapters, you're going to be lost. But we've done a pretty good job with that, so I think you're going to get the gist of it. First and foremost, the way that Daniel reacts to this is fascinating because his response to what is clearly portrayed as a supernatural vision, you know, from an angelic being who visits him and he's like in a trance. I mean, there's just nothing naturalistic about this whole thing. His reaction to it is fascinating because he's not comfortable with it. 
He's not smiling. He's not happy. He doesn't even really say in the whole thing that he wants to even talk about it. He mourns because of it. For three weeks, he mourns. He doesn't eat choice food. He doesn't have his meat or wine. He doesn't use any lotions. He's, he's mourning over what he sees. It bothers him immensely. And we have seen this reaction from Daniel in this book before. It's a very fascinating thing because in the modern time, we do have and I'm sure you all have run into them somewhere on the internet or maybe in person or whatever. You run into people who claim to have messages from God and, you know, claim to have supernatural visions and things like this from God. And I do believe, folks, that those things can happen. But what fascinates me is how those messages are delivered, number one, and number two, the content of them. Because most of the time, what I see when I look at the way this is done in the modern age is everybody is itching to write a book about their vision. Everybody is itching to teach about it and to, you know, go to conferences and tell, yeah, I've got a vision of heaven. I've got a vision of hell. I've got a vision of the future. I've got a prediction as to who's going to do what, where, when, and why. And everybody's excited about it. Everybody's happy and everybody's overflowing with joy about it. But I don't see that with Daniel. I see him very bothered by what he sees. Very, he's mourning over what he sees because he has a sense of reverence and of awe for God who spoke to him. And I fear that today some of the stuff that's going on, just, just some advice for you. Be very careful with what you're reading and what you're watching online with all of this kind of stuff. And make sure that you discern. Make sure that you can line up whatever message claims to be from God or whatever with what you see clearly in the scripture. Make sure of that. And watch the attitude and the comportment and the, 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 the posture and the presentation of people who call themselves prophets and fortune tellers and, you know, whatnot. Fortune teller, that's not a Christian thing, but you know what I'm saying. Watch it, watch it, and it, it, see if it lines up with what you see with Daniel and his posture and his attitude, because we need to be very careful in the times that we live in. His posture is mourning. He's taking this very hard and very seriously, what he hears and what he sees in the, in the pages that ensue here in chapter 10, 11, and 12. And in chapter 10, it's kind of almost an introduction to this dialogue that he has with, two, really, it's really two beings. And you, you read it, and it, it, I mean, it just, it's dazzling, you know? He has a vision of this man dressed in fine linen and, you know, in different, he's got gold, his body is like topaz, it says, his face is like lightning, his eyes are like flaming torches, his arms and his legs, they gleam with burnished bronze, his voice sounds like the voice of a multitude, and he is like stunned and afraid by what he sees. And others are around him, apparently they didn't see it, but they're overwhelmed with terror for some reason. They run and hide, and he tells a story of how he's standing alone, gazing at this great vision. He's got no strength. His face turns pale, and he's helpless really, really powerful, makes a powerful impact on him as he's writing, and then he hears the, this being speak. So it, it's just overflowing with supernatural stuff. There's nothing natural about this, and his hand touches him, and he starts to shake, and he's on his hands and his knees, and the being starts to talk to him and says, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And so he stands up and he's shaking. Verse 12, the being says, don't be afraid since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. 
and I've come in response to them. He seems to be some sort of messenger, some sort of angelic being. I know what some of you are thinking, is this Jesus? I don't think it's Jesus because the way that he talks and being sent and so on, you don't really see Jesus talk like this in the Bible, but you certainly see angels talk like this. And, and this thing continues to talk to him and says, I've come in response to you, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. It's odd. Who's this prince of the Persian kingdom resisting this angelic being for 21 days? Coincidentally, the amount of time that, that Daniel is mourning when he experiences this. Well, who is this prince of the Persian kingdom? Not identified. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Who's Michael? We're not real sure. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. You see a glimpse of something behind the scenes here in this chapter. You see uh, beings being referred to who clearly are not supposed to be understood as humans. There's something else behind the scenes that we're looking at here, and it's clearly supernatural. Who is this man dressed in linen? Who is this prince of Persia? Who is this chief prince, Michael? There seems to also be a second man which, who, who, who touches Daniel to give him courage throughout the whole experience. Then there's mention of the prince of Greece. Who is this? Seems to be some sort of behind-the-scenes whatever, angelic beings of some sort or another. There's not a lot of detail given to us, but it's an apocalypse. It's a glimpse behind the scenes. And scholars have often looked at this and said, there's, a, there's something going on that we almost never see. And it's happening on a, on a daily basis. And we see little glimpses of it here and there in the scripture, but we don't see the detail. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers in the, in the heavenly places. What is that? Many say it's, a, it's the same idea. There's something going on behind the scenes of the natural world that we don't typically see. A bit like that radio is running right there, right on cue. So, and this is the picture here, and we see just a glimpse of it. It comes and it goes, and it fades off the page fairly quickly. But the key message here from this being, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people, Daniel, in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. This is an appeal to a prediction. This being is trying to say, I'm going to tell you what will happen in the future. And that, my friends, again, is an appeal to the supernatural. If it's true and, and someone can say what's going to happen in the future or an angel can say what can happen in the future, that is an appeal to the existence of the supernatural, my friends. You cannot be a naturalist and believe that God can show something to someone that's going to happen in the future. Because only God can do that. He's the only one who's there. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. He's everywhere all the time, unbound by time. So it stands to reason if this is a real thing, then you're dealing with a very real God. And the discussion goes on back and forth between Daniel and this being. And it, it, he's kind of setting the stage for what he's going to say in Daniel chapter 11. He says, do you know why I've come to you? Verse 20, soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them. 
except Michael, your prince. Who are all these things? This is an appeal to behind-the-scenes battles of some kind of angelic beings that seem to have been over certain geographical areas. Now, some people go a little crazy with this. I don't think you can. That's as far as you can go. But clearly, this is behind the scenes, and it's portrayed as supernatural. It jumps right into chapter 11. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is the angelic being still talking, just runs right into chapter 11. And now the whole prediction starts from verse 2. And this is where it gets really interesting for us who live in the modern world. Because the whole chapter from verse 2 to verse 39 is a rather detailed play-by-play description of centuries of what is now history to us, but for Daniel it would be in his future. It's centuries, like 300 years of history, wars, political tactics, marriages, uh, that goes all the way from the Persian kings to the rise of that guy who we talked about in the beginning, Antiochus IV. Now, you don't have to take my word for this. Uh, This is a known... Um, Bible scholars on both sides of the camp, okay, those who believe that the Bible is the word of God and those who don't will acknowledge that verse 2 to verse 39 are very accurate. And they describe that period of history very well. And if you read it, you're going to read political intrigue. You're going to read wars, a bit like a chess match of these these nations coming against one another and how ultimately you see those Seleucids and those Ptolemies that we talked about before battling it out with Israel in the middle and then that character Antiochus IV rises to power. It's quite remarkable. I'm going to quote from a, a complete skeptical historian Pretty brilliant guy uh, by the name of Richard Carrier. Dr. Carrier is a historian, uh, knows, I mean, writes books after book after book attacking Christianity and the Bible and so on. He's a for, he would be a formidable opponent. If I were to try to debate this guy, he would be a very, very worthy opponent. He writes very, very well. And he talks about the book of Daniel, and he wrote a a terrific article, at least from his perspective, uh, called uh, Why or How We Know the Book of Daniel is a Fraud. Now you say, Pastor, why are you reading that stuff? Well, I like to read the other side. And, you know, you need to get to a point in your Christianity where you're mature enough to look at the attacks on your faith because you learn more about your faith that way. And you learn how to defend your faith when you look at the attacks on it. And so I like to look at what the other side says. If I'm going to teach on a book like Daniel, I want to hear what the atheist scholar says. I want to hear what, you know, what my opponent would say about the book. And here's what he says. He says, uh, and this is just an excerpt, the article is like 100 pages long, I found it online, really well written article, and he says, look, Daniel 11, 1 to 4 is not so accurate. Now, he doesn't say why, at least not in this part of the article, but Daniel 11, 5 to 39, this is a hard line, very intelligent skeptic who essentially makes his living attacking the Bible and Christianity. Quite good at it. But Daniel 11, 5 to 39, he says, is spot on. And that chapter gets progressively more detailed and precise as it follows history along from the Persian to the Alexandrian and then the Seleucid eras. Remember, the Antiochus is a Seleucid until it spends the most verses and with the most verifiable detail 
on the 10-year reign of Antiochus, I'll switch slides here, on the 10-year reign of Antiochus all the way up to just before his death and the Jewish recapture of Jerusalem, which we've talked about already in 164 BC during what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And in his view, and he quotes another author here, he says what the author of Daniel is really doing and why, in his view, the book is a fraud, is that there was no Daniel. He didn't live in the 6th century BC. He didn't write all of this stuff that we read in the book of Daniel in the 6th century BC. That would be ridiculous because that would mean that he could predict the future. And there is no God, so he can't predict the future. So in his, in his view, this is written by a very clever fraudster in the second century BC about something that the Jews were presently going through. And that's because that's how accurate it is. He says it was thus clearly written as an inspirational tract for the people fighting for the Jewish rebellion under the Maccabees, and it was probably passed off as a forgotten book, which was discovered right at the right moment, right at the right time, and became very hot and very popular. So again, in his view, this is, there is no prediction that's happening here in chapter 11, it's, it's, but it's extremely accurate. And this is coming from a historian who knows the period very well, coming at it from an atheist perspective, yes, but who's willing to admit the accuracy of the whole thing and the whole narrative. Are you with me so far? So it's good to look at the other side. If you've got the stomach for it, sometimes you can perceive things and you can learn things. And so this is his read. This is his perception. So the question is, is this thing a prophecy or is this thing a forgery? And here's the, here's the funny thing about it. It would only take one, it would take one little manuscript you would only need a manuscript about this big of the book of Daniel that you could prove was written in the 6th century BC or even in the 4th century BC before all this stuff that, that happened with you know, Antiochus and all of that. You would only need a little manuscript like this big that you could prove that was written hundreds of years before those events in order to say, we've got an evidence here of a predictive prophecy. It's a smoking gun. It's a silver bullet. And here's the, here's the trick of it. And Richard Carrier knows this. And, you know, scholars, conservative scholars know this. We don't have that manuscript. We don't have it. What we have when we look at the book of Daniel, and I've stood in front of some of these manuscripts, the oldest pieces that we have. That's what a manuscript is, a little scrap that they find in the garbage a lot of times. And, and the oldest piece that we have of the book of Daniel is written about 50 years before this whole detailed thing in Daniel chapter 11 with Antiochus IV coming into the temple and profaning the temple and the war against him and the Jews overtake the Seleucids, take back the temple. Then you have the whole Hanukkah, the festival of lights comes from that. We've talked about that in Daniel chapter 8. So the oldest scrap that we have is like 50 years before. It's in what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've stood in front of them in a, in a museum in Toronto. I think there was an exhibition. I saw it. I was able to look right at the oldest manuscript of Daniel. It's amazing. But it's not old enough to say it was written before the, the events in question. You're with me so far? So, but, but the question becomes, how is it that this manuscript was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date you know, second century BC or in those whereabouts, how is it that it made it in there so fast if this thing is a forgery and a fraud, as Dr. Richard Carrier would say? And, you know, there's differing views on this, but as yet, it's not a silver bullet because no one has found a manuscript older than that. And so Richard Carrier continues to write articles, and the skeptics, skeptics continue to attack Daniel. But I guarantee you, folks, 
when they find a manuscript that they can say, uh-oh, this thing is 5th century B.C., these skeptics are going to have to rewrite their, their apologetics and rewrite their arguments because even they are admitting that the contents of Daniel, at least up to verse 39, is spot-on detailed accurate. And so the reader is forced to make a choice. You can't stand on the middle ground. You have to make a choice. Am I looking at a forgery or am I looking at a highly detailed piece of predictive prophecy? And my decision about God is going to be influenced based on my opinion. If I think that this thing is a piece of predictive prophecy, then I have reason to believe that God exists and knows the future before it happens and can proclaim it. Or I can take the side of the skeptic and say, no, this is a pious forgery from a zealous Jew trying to encourage his people right at the time of writing, and he couches it with all this fantasy and all this myth and so on and so on. And therefore, I don't believe that God exists, and therefore, I live my life with that in my head. So you're forced. You don't have a choice. You read Daniel 10, you're dealing with the supernatural. <laughs> Daniel 11, you're dealing with the supernatural, and it gets even worse when you get into Daniel chapter 12, because then it's like it explodes, and you're talking about the time of the end, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, and what the skeptics will do is they'll say, well, you know, the, the, this writer, he's got it right up to verse 39. And watch what happens from verse 39 to verse 40. It's like a, it happens in the blink of an eye. Verse 39, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. This is speaking of uh, Antiochus IV. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. This is exactly what happened, according to even the hardened skeptic scholars. But then verse 40, everything changes, everything switches in the blink of an eye. At the time of the end, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him. The him is the king of the north, presumably Antiochus IV. In battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships, and he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, and it continues. And the scholars look at this and they say, we have no idea what he's talking about. Because it didn't happen. The king of the north, Antiochus, didn't do that. The king of the south didn't do that. He's off. Right there is where everything switches. But what they don't notice is what it says right at the beginning of the verse, at the time of the end. And in the author's mind, what he is seeing and what Daniel is seeing, he's switching into a totally different era of time as if it's nothing. And this is a common thing that we see in the genre of predictive prophecy in the Bible. It's like uh, people use the illustration of a mountain. If you stand and you, you look at mountain peaks and you see them, you just see the peaks. You don't see all the deep valleys in between and all the huge, vast amounts of land in between. You just see the peaks and it looks like a very short thing. But you don't see all of the valleys. And people who study it, this is the peaks and valleys moment of predictive prophecy here. And the author is switching into a totally different era of time and looking at people who behave like these ancient people, but it's in the future sometime. Because he talks about things that clearly are on like this global, global scale as he marches into chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as what has not happened since the beginning of nations until then. And But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, a phrase we see in Revelation, will be delivered multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Folks, this is the clearest Old Testament reference. There's no reference more clear in the entire Old Testament to the resurrection of the dead, the physical resurrection of the dead, than this verse. You see this expanded upon in the New Testament, of course, but in the Old Testament, that's the only verse that clearly, clearly pictures it. That's a big, big, big thing. That hasn't happened yet. That's clearly a whole supernatural thing. Like, that's wild. And you see, it just continues with this right up until the end. And Daniel sees this, and he says, what will the outcome of all of this be? Verse 8, and the angel answers, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Verse 40, again, at the time of the end, and here in chapter 12, it's sealed until the time of the end. Daniel asks the question, he gets a mysterious answer, how long will it take before this happens? And the man says, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. What time is he talking about? I mean, it's so strange. It's so bizarre. It's so mysterious. And so he says, what do I do? What, what, what is Daniel supposed to do? And he says, you go your way because the, the words are rolled up. They're sealed up until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of them will understand, but those who are wise will understand. And he, he, he mentions a thing about time and a 1,290 days and 300, 1,335 days. I mean, there's so many views about what he can be talking about. No one knows for sure. It's so strange. And the book ends by saying this, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance, period. The book of Daniel ends this way. Clearly, folks, like there's no way you can skirt around it. What the author is trying to do here is, is preach to his audience things about the nature and the character of God. He wants people, as you watch the whole book, this is the message. God is sovereign. To be sovereign means that ultimately he reigns over everything. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when the dust settles, it is his world, it is his will, and what he wants ultimately gets done in spite of the will of man, in spite of the sin of man, in spite of the free will of man. God ultimately has his way. He is sovereign. As, as was observed by Daniel, he brings up one king, he brings another king down, he changes times, he changes seasons. In effect, he does what he wants, and no one can stop him. He is sovereign. This is what the, message, the preacher here is trying to say as he writes these last three chapters. And clearly, God is supernatural. And this, I fear, we have lost in the modern era. The modern church has settled for a God who's, you know, he's, he's very tame. He, he's in a nice little box. And he doesn't really, they don't really think about God as being supernatural anymore. They don't put, we don't pray prayers that would involve God working in a supernatural way anymore. It's like we become kind of you know, hard to that idea and skeptical toward that idea. Maybe even Dr. Richard Carrier would look at us and say, wow, you guys are supposed to believe that God is supernatural. Why are you not praying that God will do something and do something that is not natural? My friends, he's not, he's not in some little box, nice and tame the way that you want him to be. He is 
supernatural. There is a world that exists behind us that we never see or very rarely see. God will raise the dead is the message of the conclusion here. He will. That's a clearly a supernatural thing that's being taught here, that's being preached here. There will be a resurrection of the dead. It will be something that is entirely different than anything that we understand right now. And God will ultimately redeem his creation. This was meant to be a message of hope to the people who heard it, to the people who read this book, that God will wind everything up. God will ultimately fix everything. God will ultimately redeem people, redeem creation. He encourages his readers, you hold on to your faith. Even if you're in exile, you hold on to your faith. You don't compromise your faith because God is all of these things. And whether you're the hardened skeptic or the true believer, that's the message that this author is trying to convey. And my, my question to you, who are you know, attending a church meeting on Sunday morning for oh, no, many, many reasons, I'm sure. My question to you is, what is your perception of your God? What is your perception? Can he do these things? Is he these things that Daniel claims that he is? Is he these things to you? Can he do these things in your understanding, in your perception? And I think God would challenge us to enlarge our bandwidth and our understanding of who he is. And on that note, we'll end. Would you stand with me? Any musicians you want to come and play in the background, we'll just wind up in a word of prayer here as we finish this, uh, this terrific book. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for each person who's here in the room, those who are watching online, those who are going to watch and listen later. Oh God, what a time we live in. What a strange and bizarre time we live in uh, with so many voices and uh, so many messages and so much religion and so much spirituality and uh, so many questions. Oh God, I pray people with it, within the sound of my voice, God, people who would, who would uh, get this content electronically, you would challenge us. You would help us to grow our understanding of who you are. May it be wider. May it, may it be deeper. May people's faith increase, oh God. Maybe there's prayers that people in this room have prayed and they just gave up. They said, God, not even God can do it. He can't do the supernatural. I've never seen it happen. Not even God can break this habit in my life. Not even God can change this circumstance. And they just gave up, oh God. I pray you would help them to pick that thing up and to bring it back to your throne and to call out to you in a new way that our our bandwidth of faith would grow wider, Lord. That we would believe that you can do the things that you say once again. That the voices of this world around us and this culture around us and this kind of exile situation that we even live in right here in our own province, that, oh God, it wouldn't squash people's faith, but it would actually make people's faith grow, that those of us who are walking toward you would take another step closer and not farther, that we would dig deeper, that our roots would grow stronger, and that we would be able to face the challenges ahead. Lord, whatever they may be, we pray in the name of Jesus together. And everyone said, amen. The Lord bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids over in number 11. Have a terrific Sunday. Students, if you want to go bowling, there's still time to sign up. God bless you, everyone.
darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken great are you lord it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only you give life you are love you bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken great are you lord it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you It's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath 